Kia ora koutou katoa. Welcome to The Hoon, where co-host Peter Bale and I go around the week's news in geopolitics and Aotearoa's political economy with a whole bunch of experts, academics and politicians, all to understand our worlds better and have some fun. Everyone, it's lovely to have you here for the weekly hoon on the kaka. I'm just uh, loving all of this summery, cicadery uh, warmth and sun. I'm one of those people who just loves a good sunny day. This year in the United States, three, I think, of the broods of cicadas that come out uh, every 13, I think it's the seven years, the 13 years, and the 17-year cicadas are all coming at once. Yikes. And so there are going to be trillions of cicadas. Now, one time when I was in Washington, it was the, seven, the turn of the 17-year cicadas, and it was pretty extraordinary, really. It was, you know, it was like having, it was like it was raining cicadas and the noise was deafening. And of course, as we know, cicadas is the last, I think it's the last, yeah, the last series of um, Slow Horses is about cicadas. Oh, but that's really? Another one. Yeah. And that would be a, if I go too far on that one, that will be a spoiler alert. And the thought that all three cohorts will come together this year in America and create the most enormous the enormous noise and mess. And apparently, what the the advice from the um, etymologists is to, or the entomologists, entomologists. I always get etymology and entomology confused, which um, uh, and don't get me started on ornithology. But um, <laughs> is to sweep them all into piles and put them on your lawn as compost. And don't you even think about them. spraying them. Oh, I suppose you, well, I'm sure if, well, you have those Great grasshopper protein. things, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I, I'm not sure you're allowed to eat New Zealand cicadas. So a lot of mess and a lot of noise sounds like the US presidential elections. Yes, yes. I mean, the, the gracelessness of our friend Donald Trump is just extraordinary. And I'm, I am starting to get quite sort of, I was, I was thinking about it today and I'm thinking how anxious it makes me to even think of having him back as president. Because if you remember, I mean, I would always think that the Washington Post had a terrific podcast for that, which was called, I think it was, Can He Really Do That? <laughs> and, uh, you know, the difference, the difference now is he has a plan. He's got a really remarkable, deep, deep plan to take control of the deep state and replace it with his deep state. Um, you know, Jonathan Swan, who's now at the New York Times but was an axios, has done some fantastic work about the extent to which he wants to change the Department of Justice, uh, the removal of um, non nonpartisan civil service people in the in the in the US, and of course, you know he's he's recommended um, you know big changes in the military and so on. So I, you know when you just see his graceless behaviour with Nikki Haley, and not to mention the extraordinary array of sycophants who were behind him, including you know that Tim Scott, Vivek Ramaswamy. I mean, it's just it is nauseating um, the extent to which their lips are puckering. Ron DeSantis. And Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis, yeah. I will never kiss the ring, and he kissed He most that certainly did. Ring. He did. We went even further than there. But <laughs> the, the best thing, of course, was the that about Ron was the um, thinking he was quoting Churchill, uh, but actually quoting about a 1935 Budweiser advertisement. <laughs> <sighs> I mean, it would be funny if it wasn't so freaking exactly, scary. Exactly. I keep looking for really good witty. You know, I've been you know reading a tremendous amount about it, and there's very little out there that's that actually makes you smile and is witty. It's basically pretty bloody depressing. Yeah, I mean, there is some nice pungency about some of the cartoons that I'm seeing at the moment. Mm. I, I for my for my sins and to distract myself uh, from work. Uh, <laughs> yes, I, I will look at cartoons. Uh, one of the good things about X is that it allows you access when you do your searching and list building right to the most amazing array of cartoonists who put all their cartoons on X. Mm. It's fantastic. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I, I keep thinking, I think my favorite, it wasn't explicitly about Trump, but clearly was, which was a, a whole bunch of sheep in a, in a, in a field looking out up of, of a billboard with a wolf on it saying, I'm going to eat you. <laughs> and one, one sheep is saying to the other, I just like the way he tells it how it is. <laughs> 
<laughs> exactly. Um, no, I'm having having fun picking those out. And for those who who read the morning uh, briefings that I try to get out in the morning, um, I usually put a cartoon of the day at the bottom of those. And mm-hmm. that is which, of um, course, I think that's probably a tremendous breach of copyright, isn't it? I was going to do that in my spin-off thing today and put a cartoon in there, and then I thought, hang on a minute, I can't really, you know, I can tell you where to go to the original, but I really am lifting it. Well, this is an interesting problem, and I think Fair about use this a lot. Fair use in a cartoon is pretty hard, Bernard, I think, yeah. actually. Well, A, um, it's always below the paywall fold. Uh, B, I only link to the cartoons that the actual cartoonists have themselves put on Twitter. Oh, well, that's 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 fair enough. Yep, yep, yep. And yep, I, I like always that. link to uh, their place in their publication. So if it's at the Times of London, I put a Morton Morland one up uh, today, for example, mm-hmm. uh, the New Zealand cartoonists. I always link to their place where they can sell their employers' subscriptions. Good, good, good. Oh, you're so good, Bernard. You're, I mean, as a as a maker and creator yourself, you're you know you understand you're you're backing up fellow creators. Yeah, and I only link to the place where the creators themselves have given away their own copyright. Yeah, to fair X. enough. Speaking of which, how are you getting on with your uh, not your Nazi problem, but um, <laughs> the Nazi problem of, of Substack? Yes. Well, I really appreciated the support of all of the subscribe. Not quite all of the subscribers. There were a few who have decided to cancel. And I reached out to them and uh, hoped, I wished them well and hoped that I could win them back over time. We have had solid uh, subscriptions and uh, the traffic continues. And we certainly are... Um, uh, when we say we, you mean you and Mrs Hickey. Oh, I know. I suppose Catherine's there too. Yes, no, and um, the team, the wider team, the wider Fano, the wider um, diaspora of the Kaka. Um, mm-hmm. We we are very lucky to to be in here, and I'm thrilled actually with the very active and constructive and human uh, discussions that are on the chat uh, yeah. function inside yeah. the app of Substack, and I recommend all subscribers. Uh, who uh, are in that paying subscriber tier to get the app and to go into the chat uh, section, which is always useful, lots of interesting links, discussions between paying subscribers to the Kaka. And it's one of the things that actually means staying in Substack is very useful and very thoughtful. Yeah, I was going to say that, Bernard. I, you, I was, I was, you, you were telling me about this the other day, and I, I think that is a very civilized, it seems like a very civilized set of conversations. I mean, because we know that that whole area is fraught and you don't have the time or the scope really to patrol your own commentary area and less comments area unless unless someone warns you of something. And it was interesting today, I, I saw a thing on Twitter that, um, or it's X rather, that Television New Zealand's turned off the comments on One News about the Good. Treaty of Waitangi. Good. And the person was saying, I wonder if this is because it's, they're trying to keep it decent or whether they're trying to stick to their own position. I don't think Television New Zealand has a position on that at all, um, despite what, what some people say about the, the mainstream media in New Zealand. I suspect they're mainly just trying to avoid spending an awful lot of time cleaning up uh, pointless and painful messes and yes. also trying to avoid um, their own staff being traumatized. Mm, um, mm. This is a real issue, for particularly for a lot of young journalists who are working often. One of their first jobs is moderating comments at mm. um, established news publishers. And particularly for uh, uh, women, women of color, young women, the abuse that comes from the general unpaying anonymized public is mm. uh, beyond belief and shouldn't be uh, allowed. And my solution with uh, uh, subscriptions uh, and allow only allowing people who are subscribers to comment uh, amazingly changes the incentives enormously. Have you run a Have you run and asked me anything yet, Bernard, about the Nazi question? Have you like opened it up for a discussion? Yeah, there have been some interesting chats in the chat thread mm-hmm. um, where all the paying subscribers have said various things, and there was an extremely active series of threads uh, probably a week or two ago, which are all still there and. There were some good uh, points made from both uh, camps, if you like, and and also people who were reaching out to people in other camps to mm. um, have a proper discussion. It's a it's a it's a really positive, enlightening, uh, hopeful thing to watch an online discussion where people are being humans, which is civilized. I think that's yeah. a, that's really amazing of you, actually, actually. But and by the way, I love the way you've you've just changed your position slightly so that the carcass sign is 
is topmost. And speaking of camping, there's Catherine. <laughs> yes, and Catherine, <laughs> lovely to see you. Thank you very much for uh, dialing in from uh, sunny Northland, the winterless north, permanently summery north, sometimes uh, sub- when it rains. <laughs> submerged north. Which is going to this weekend, I believe. Yeah, is, yeah. That, is that right? Oh. Um, lovely to see you. And we've just been talking actually about the quality of online debate, the way that information is distributed online, the way that people share information, the way that debates become... Uh, weaponized and sometimes the sheer volume of noise can sometimes shift the debate one way or another. In this week's uh, wrap of climate news and research, you focused in particular on um, how the most uh, read and most popular academic papers on the climate can be influenced by who's sharing what online. Could you talk about that for a bit? Yeah, so I had a look at a, an analysis that was done by Carbon Brief um, online, and they were looking at all of the climate papers in 2023 and which ones had got the most attention. So they used a score called Altmetric, and that measure looks at how often academic papers appear in online news articles and blogs and on social media. And and they weighted as well. So, you know, like a tweet um, has a lower weighting than appearing in a news article, for instance, but they end up with this, with an overall score. And so they looked at the top, um, well, they looked at the top 25, but the top 10 in particular And the number one paper, academic paper on climate change last year was basically the reason it was number one and had such a high score was because it got picked up by climate deniers who tweeted it some something like 60,000 times on Mm -hmm. Twitter or X because it was a study of changes in Antarctic ice shelf area between 2009 and 2019. And that study used satellite data, and that study showed that there had been an increase of 5,300 square kilometres of ice shelf in Antarctica, which essentially just goes to show that we live in a really complex ecosystem. Um, there's a lot of forcings and feedbacks and different things going on that, that are sometimes hard to understand mm. and occasionally produce kind of these counterintuitive results that can mask the long-term trends. And we also know that in the last couple of years, it completely reversed and we lost a whole lot of the ice shelf in Antarctica, like record amounts in really concerning ways. So it was a short-term effect, but the the deniers got a hold of it and shared it like prolifically. Like it was actually stunning just how productive those people were <laughs> with sharing their their news that they thought kind of um, showed that everybody in the climate science community was wrong and they were right. <laughs> so yeah, that was the, the number one paper by almost double the next one. It just goes to show how much of a a confirmation bias mm, machine mm. that um, Twitter but other social media have become and how difficult it is to have real conversations between two tribes that are beating their chests, brandishing articles and research. Or that... brandishing their chests. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and absolutely. And the authors of that paper themselves have kind of said, well, we you know, could not keep up with what was going on and we couldn't answer to it because it was just being shared all over the place and it was completely wrong, but we couldn't you know, we couldn't deal with it. You know, it just it just went off. And and interesting research too coming out of Victoria University recently on uh, who are the climate deniers and how people shift perhaps over time from one group of uh, beliefs to another. Yeah. So this kind of got me interested, and in, you know, because everything I've been hearing lately is oh, the number of of traditional climate deniers is shrinking considerably because it's getting mm. increasingly difficult to to maintain that position in the face of all the evidence that we can all experience. And and so it was kind of like, well, how small is this group of people and, and how are they managing still to have so much influence? And the paper that I found, it was um, it was published in December last year, so it's quite a recent paper, and it was by a group of um, people at Victoria University, so it was New Zealand researchers. They were looking at the New Zealand Values and Attitudes Study, and they were pulling out information that related to climate change beliefs and values. Um, mm-hmm. And they looked at how they changed between 2018 and 2019. So the researchers involved were Tatiano Milfont, Ariana Athi, and Chris Sibley. And so they sort of split those people into groups, and they found that the last largest group, which is over 60% of people had the highest levels of climate change belief and concerns. And then there were a couple of like two, three or four in-between groups. And then you get to the smallest group 
of climate sceptics or deniers, and that group was just 3.7%. Mm. And who, who were they? What do we know about them? Conservative MPs, as far as I can see. Yeah. yeah. Male, New Zealand European, religious tendency to endorse conservative and system-justifying ideologies. So basically, in other Sounds words... Sounds like me. Sadly. <laughs> they're motivated by a desire to maintain what are the current societal structures because they benefit from them. Mm. You know? So it's really not about science and more about power and culture. Which means that Winston Peters is right to tap into them. And so is probably Christopher Luxon and uh, Simeon Brown, no? It depends on your definition of right, I suppose, but, <laughs> but it certainly worked for them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that, that issue of 3.7%, which actually sounds about the, the size of the group of the people who were voting for various parties in the election, uh, the, the individual anti-vax and various conservative parties uh, that mostly got around 1%. And then there was a few people who made a strategic decision to shift their vote from one of those uh, individual parties to New Zealand First to ensure that their vote wasn't wasted. And it worked. They, that mm. helped mm. lift New Zealand First over the 5% threshold. And now we have uh, Winston Peters, who over the last three years expressed some quite climate sceptic adjacent views and uh, certainly some of the MPs in New Zealand First and ACT who are now in Parliament have over the years uh, expressed views which are climate sceptic views and of course ACT and New Zealand First New Zealand First blocked uh, the attempt by the Greens to give reserve bank-like powers to the Climate Commission it went between 2017 and 2020 when the Climate Zero Act was being created. And of course, Act wants to significantly reduce the powers of the Climate Commission and renege on the Paris Agreement. And it fits with other, you know, your, your thing about them, about them wanting kind of sta uh, non-statist solutions and wanting the status quo to continue. Mm. The, you know, the, the adjacency of these various things is, is, is pretty clear. Yeah, and one of the in the conclusion to the study, the other thing they said is that although this is a minority, the demographic and socio-psychological characteristics of people in that group, they tend to be overrepresented in these kind of quite powerful socioeconomic mm. positions in society. So they do have much more power, particularly to delay climate action. Not journalism, though, clearly. <laughs> yeah, they're very good at delaying climate action, basically. So, yeah, they do, they do still have quite a bit of power. And, and when you look at what's happening in the United States with the growth of the Atlas Network, mm -hmm. which is a, a group of conservative, often pro-Trump, often uh, anti-abortion and um, broadly anti-quote woke uh, in their views, they have pumped enormous amounts, hundreds of millions of dollars into various political campaigns in the United States. But it's interesting, over the last couple of years, they have hooked up with various similar groups mm. in other parts of the world, including the Taxpayers Union in New Zealand, but uh, also we've, they were involved in helping to fund the no vote in Australia with the vote to express choice for uh, Indigenous Australians and uh, was quite successful in helping to block that. And also, Bernard, it takes very. I mean, you, you will have seen as a result of the Harvard case and the and the Harvard president losing her job, and Bill mm. Ackman uh, from Pershing Pershing Square Partners um, embarrassing himself by attacking ha uh, um, Harvard and various other journalists. These things also take a very brief time to come to New Zealand. The DEI movement, the movement against diversity, equity, and inclusion. I, I noticed this chap, Nick Mowbray, who I think has a toy company or something in New Zealand, um, was blowering about it today. I mean, it, it, these, they, they just become these kind of irritant things that you then pick up on, on X or wherever. And then, of course, Alex Spence the other day in the Herald did quite a good piece on the New Zealander behind the Legatum Institute, mm -hmm. uh, who was also a contributor to, to GB News in the UK. Um, unfortunately, it seems he's, he's not quite as um, disreputable as, as his reputation might suggest as far as the investigative work that Alex did. But, you know, this, there, there is a hell of a network here. People talk about the network of the left. But the network of the right is rather powerful, probably far more powerful than George Soros has ever been. 
Tina Nata did a brilliant column today that was kind of related to the stuff as well. I'll have mm-hmm. to um, pull it out for you. It was it was excellent. It was just joining all those dots about some of that kind of far right stuff. Oh, we'll make sure we put that into the show notes with this week's um, version of the Hoon that goes out. Uh, that is produced and, and uh, recorded and produced by Simon. Josie, um, the producer of uh, The Hoon, and uh, we'll make sure we put links in there. Catherine, thank you very much for coming on. I hope you managed to get a few more swims in in Northland before the rain We're all having swims. Actually, I haven't had a first day in weeks. I haven't had a swim. I'm out directly after this. I'm heading down there to... (laughs) Good, good. I can see Robert's been for a swim, though. Have you, Robert? Really? I've been tramping. (laughs) Have you? Jesus, it must be quite hot there, isn't it, though? It is. Unfortunately, um, I've got a bit of hay fever, so I apologise if I'm looking a bit puffy around the eyes. That's oh, why. Oh, no. Yeah, I must say, you do you do look very, very healthy and relaxed and, and in holiday mode. We really appreciate you coming on the show. Unfortunately, it's been time of the year of extraordinary events, action, and New Zealand's become involved in it. Uh, the big news this week, and, and there's been... I've seen you you commenting on uh, the national media as well, Robert. Um, New Zealand's decision uh, expressed on Monday to send troops, uh, military personnel to the Middle East to uh, assist in some way the US and UK airstrikes on Houthi positions in Yemen. Just starting off there, what what did you think of the, the government's stance? It's puzzling. And it doesn't sit comfortably with their earlier stance. So there mm-hmm. seems to be a contradiction uh, between the earlier position that New Zealand had of voting for a ceasefire twice mm. in the General Assembly, uh, UN General Assembly. And remember, we co-sponsored the second resolution on the 13th of December. Mm. It was thwarted by the United States, which exercised considerable opposition to both the General Assembly resolutions, but also it vetoed similar resolutions in the UN Security Council. And then we now have a situation when the government's claiming, ah, we've got to act with respect to Houthi attacks in the Red Sea. And by the way, there's no connection between the Houthi attacks in the Red Sea and the unrelenting Israeli military assault in Gaza, which has accounted for about 20,000, 25,000 Palestinian deaths. I think that claim these two events were disconnected will not wash. And I, I think the government's explanation, you know, what they're really claiming is that the rule of law is being challenged in the Red Sea. And because we're a law-abiding international citizen, we've got to go and act. And I heard Mr. Luxon proudly say that we don't only only uphold these values, we act on them. Mm. But most people will see this as very selective because we know that the lawlessness that, and it's very real, that's going on in the Red Sea, and I'm not making any apologies for the Houthis' behaviour, is a direct result of law, a lawless war conflict that's going on in Gaza, which the, even the basic tenets of humanitarian law are not being observed. Mm. On the other hand, Robert, the government, I mean, for the first time since they've come back from holiday, has at least, Winston Peters has at least reinforced the idea that there must be a, thir- a, a two-party solution and condemned Netanyahu rejecting the idea of a two-party solution. So I, I, I assume that, that is, there's no coincidence there, that, they, that, that even Winston Peters sees that ambiguity that you described. I think two things there, Peter. I, that has long been the position of the government. They said that twice in October and mm-hmm. in December. So there's nothing really new there, except that Mr Peters is actually saying it. Uh, secondly, uh, the, 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 the United States continues to arm very generously and apparently unconditionally the party which, led by Mr Netanyahu, takes pride in the fact that not only has it thwarted a Palestinian state in the last 30 years, but while Mr Netanyahu is in charge, will continue to do so. And so what I would like to see from the government would have been to publicly call on the United States to rethink its position of arming an ally mm-hmm. which does not share 
the political aim for which the arms are being used. But what do you, what do you take though from? I mean, I I know it's been it's been the New Zealand position for a while, but there's got to be a reason that Winston Peters in the last two or three days has, I think, issued th- two or three statements even on the two party, on the two party state idea. What what do you think the reason is for that? Is it to counter exactly what you're saying? The the con- the sort of potential yes, cynicism. Yes, I think Mr. Peters is beginning to get some pushback, as is Judith Collins and is Mr. Luxon. On you know they're absolutely right to say that New Zealand depends crucially on an international rules-based order, mm. but that is why we should have been publicly speaking and demanding for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza within the first week because it became apparent that the Israeli response was disproportionate and, in Nanai Mahuta's words, not corresponding or respecting humanitarian law. Which, of course, the the interim prime minister. Um, did, uh, but he did it as uh, of as leader of the Labour Party. He did, and he, even then it was quite belated. Mm. Mm. I, I wonder why they've gone so hard on this because there's plenty of other countries, um, you know, in the Western democratic sphere who have stepped back or at least you know uh, not been quite so involved. That's a great question, Bernard. I, I think this government. Mr. Luxon Peters and Judith Collins believe that they need a closer strategic relationship with traditional allies, the United States and Australia. They may see this deployment as a way uh, of, in a sec, smoothing over the tensions that mm-hmm. existed. We were the first of the, we were the only Five Eyes country to demand an immediate humanitarian truce back mm-hmm. in October which probably caused some tensions behind the scene. This may be a way of trying to smooth that process of having that very close relationship. But I think Mr. Luxon and Mr. Peters and Mr. Uh, and Ms. Collins may need to be very careful in aggressively pushing for a realignment to the extent which they seem to be in mm. terms of New Zealand-US relations. Why? Uh, because... It, it could incur some reputational damage to the idea that New Zealand pursues an independent foreign policy. Secondly, it will almost certainly polarise opinion in this country, right across the board, both within national and in Labour, there's been considerable pride that this country has been, has been uh, you know, very friendly with Australia and the United States, but has preached unity rather than uniformity. Mm. If we are seen to be in lockstep, that will, I think, erode a considerable diplomatic advantage we've had, and uh, it will certainly be a huge disappointment to the global south. Remember, 160 countries voted for the resolution that New Zealand co-sponsored in the General Assembly. That's over two-thirds of the General Assembly. So, you know, it's all very well saying, oh, the... Uh, lawlessness in the Red Sea has got no connection with the lawlessness in Gaza. But I'm not sure the rest of the world will see it that way. Do you think Winston Peters, Robert, has had to pull pull the foreign, foreign ministry um, back from that kind of view? Do you think there's been a message go out to be that, that perhaps he wouldn't have directed that October vote? I really don't know, Peter. It's very difficult to know. I do get the feeling the government hasn't thought through its policy and they looked quite surprised by some of the questions at the press conference they got. I've got enormous respect for MFAT and the Ministry of Defence. Many of the people there are very talented and very knowledgeable and I can't believe they weren't briefed for the sort of questions they got, but they looked stunned at certain moments. It was quite an uncomfortable watch and also an, an enlightening one to see the press gallery Thomas Coughlin, Mark Dalder in particular, nailing them all to the spot and for all of them to look at each other going, uh, which then raises the question, Bernard and Peter, whether the policy they came up with was the result of intra-party um, bargaining mm. rather than a coherent policy. And it fell apart at the first time it was challenged. And all on camera with all three of them in the single shot. Yeah, I mean, it, look, uh, the thing is, I think few of us have any, uh, you know, uh, it's entire, Mr. Peters is right. The, 
We do not want to see lawless behaviour in the Red Sea. We're a trading nation. And so we have a legitimate right, I believe, to contribute to efforts to end that behaviour. But A, the Houthis made it very clear from the outset that that behaviour of attacking ships, which were perceived to be linked to Israel, would stop as soon as there was a ceasefire. But secondly, it seems to me you can't, if you're in a position like New Zealand, you can't compartmentalise international law in the way that the government seems to be trying to do. You can't say the, the situation in the Red Sea is divorced from the situation in Gaza. That, that to me, is, you know, it won't wash. And the other thing here is, so far, efforts to deter the Houthis have not been spectacularly successful. You know, we often forget that the Houthis, which are backed by Iran, are battle-hardened. They seem to actually be relishing the confrontation that's unfolding. And uh, one thing I think our government needs to inform everyone in this country is what is the political objective of entering the fray? What are we trying to achieve here? And why aren't we putting, why aren't we speaking out more for the need for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza? I would, I think the position that the government should have taken was to say publicly they would contribute NZDF personnel if the United States had a rethink and backed an immediate ceasefire, New Zealand would do its bit in the Mm. Red Sea. That should have been the approach. Robert, thank you so much for uh, coming on to the show during your holiday again. And uh, I'll get back to the tramping. It's time now to introduce a fresh guest onto the Hoon, uh, Holly Bennett, who is the, the founder and owner of Afi Group, which is a government relations and communications company that uh, has been operating for a few years in the area of advocacy to uh, government, but also uh, communications for various uh, companies and organisations. Holly, lovely to have you on the Hoon. Uh, great, great to to hear from you uh, this week, and thanks for coming off. Um, uh, hopefully, you've had a good summer uh, of 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 holiday. But glad to see you and hear you back. Kelda, thank you so much for having me. Now I just realised my camera's not on. I apologise. So. No, 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 that's all right. The beautiful thing is the huge numbers of people who listen to the Hoon often listen to the audio version, the podcast. So it's uh, your sound quality is amazing. So thank you very much for that. I just tried to do it and I can't. But hey, that means I have to come back and I have to come back with my my camera on. Oh, absolutely. No, we, we'd love to have you on again. And it's very uh, topical and uh, interesting to uh, bring you on. Because this week there's been some more reporting from Guy Nespina about the connections between various companies, lobbying organisations and political parties. Um, He's been working hard at this over the last few years and there are growing concerns about the lack of uh, regulation, uh, official disclosure and also the um, the issue of people jumping from one type of job, perhaps in government, perhaps as a minister, into other jobs without much of a cooling off period. Uh, Holly, in the last year or so, uh, you've been advocating for various ways in which there can be better uh, a transparency and information. Could you talk a bit about what you'd like to see for the lobbying sector government relations? Sure. So my priority is thinking about how this industry actually serves the people, right? So I've been doing this for six years now. I've built my business from nothing and now I've got five employees. And one of the things that we put front and centre is how we actually serve things that help the country? How do we advance things that we're actually proud to stand by? So, you know, when it's when we come to bringing clients on board, there is not one, not one client that I am not proud to represent. And I will stake my reputation on those that mm. I stand alongside because I believe in what they're doing. And whether that's a paid client or a pro bono client, when you get into this industry, what I have seen is that there are some people that are more than happy to stay in the shadows, not be clear about what they're doing, do not want to talk about fees. They're really not interested in a competitive industry. And by that, I mean creating jobs, creating pathways in here for the next generation. And that is where I think that we have a problem because when you don't have a competitive industry, then you don't have one that has to be uh, 
innovative. You don't have one that has to worry about if it's providing high quality services and you don't have one that has to compete on price. Yeah, it's interesting. You've called for a public uh, lobbying register and a code of conduct uh, with an oversight body based on the New Zealand Media Council. Um, could you give us a sense at the moment of you know what we have in terms of any regulation or disclosure, and how other countries uh, deal with these issues around you know who's lobbying who and how much money is being spent and uh, ensuring that we don't have a revolving door between um, government and business and lobbying? I mean, Bernard, you probably will not like what I'm about to say, but we actually have nothing anywhere mm. across the entire industry. It's completely unregulated. And I mean, apart from following the law, <laughs> there's not really other, any other guidelines. Um, and one of the things I was saying was that not necessarily we need to have all of those things, but I do think it's important to look across at what other jurisdictions have had. I think that they've been far more um, pragmatic as to what lobbyists can do and the way in which we are able to um, improve situations for those who hire our services and then gone, well, what are the things that I like? What have I seen that has worked well? And there are a number of things that I think that we could do. And I did say to a few of my counterparts across the industry to varying bits of feedback, some in support, some not so much, to say, what should we be doing? What should we do to say to the public, we're here as an industry, we're legitimate and actually we do provide value. I mean, we're at the junction now, we're a draft code led by the Ministry of Justice uh, is out for consultation with the industry itself. I mean, there's a number of things that concern me with that in and of itself is that I'm actually pretty distraught that the public sector has to lead this. Mm -hmm. I think it should be the industry itself. I think where we, you know, if we're actually doing our jobs properly as directors of our companies, then we should actually have money aside to be able to think about the industry. At least that's my position. I don't think that we should have the industry putting the uh, sorry the public sector putting money into this. Uh, inherently, we are private firms, so that means that we are looking for profit as well. Uh, so there's that, but there's also still this um, this view out there that this this review, this work that's being done, is a solution searching for a problem. Mm. And now that's a really common bit of feedback that you get. And I think two points come to mind. One, we don't actually need to wait until there is a massive problem for our industry to set standards. And two, the people who generally say this, I see are the ones that are happy for a lobbyist to go from private sector, working in the prime minister's office and straight back out. And frankly, I just think that's disgusting. Holly, may I, it's Peter here. May I ask you a couple of questions? I, I, was thinking about this, and of course, I recall. Um, I think it was around the time when Chris Farfoy um, left left Parliament and went off to be to be a lobbyist very quickly. Jacinda Ardern said at the time that it didn't really matter because everybody knew what everybody else was doing. That seemed a little naive to me. But then I also looked up just now Transparency International's ranking of New Zealand on the corruption index, and uh, we're number two. Although we were number one yesterday last year, and, and Denmark just pipped us on that. So what, what's the problem? If we're still number two on the Transparency Corruption Index, um, is there really a problem here? Are we, are, we looking, are we looking for a solution to a non-existent problem? Don't you dare say that. I just said those people who say that. Are <laughs> 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 generally ones that are happy <laughs> with lobbyists going into the public sector and right back out. But what I would say this uh, to you, Peter, is um, do you think the majority of New Zealanders appreciate what the lobbying industry does and appreciates what a lobbyist is? Uh, no, and I think actually, I, okay, that goes to another question then, Holly. Let's just, just do a little bit of bit of Australian Open tennis on the questions then. Yeah, sure. <laughs> do you think that one of the reasons why lobbyists are successful, um, gigantically well-paid and increasingly influential is the relative weakness of the New Zealand media over the last few years, that you're filling well, a void? I don't, I, don't, I don't know if the media is necessarily weak. I wouldn't say that because, you know, there are only things that can be held to account by the media. So I wouldn't go as far as to say that. I would, and also when we, those three points that you talked about, about lobbyists, the second one, I would say I'm not wild, wildly <laughs> rich, but, you know, we'll work on it. We'll work on it. Maybe I spend a little bit less time on asking the industry to be better and a bit more time on my bottom line. Maybe Lobbying could, for yourself. Yeah, yeah. good on you. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, what, what I would say is that, there is, I guess, uh, you know, there's a, 
a belief out there uh, and it's quite pervasive that, you know, we, we're not corrupt and, yeah, to some degree we're not, but also there is nothing to say, to put a barometer up to say this is what we expect of our lobbyists. Mm. And that is the thing that is most concerning to me because at the same time I'm a lobbyist, I'm also a lawyer. And so as a lawyer, I have got an overriding duty to the court. Mm -hmm. And this is the thing when I come back to what are these principles, what is the overriding duty of lobbyists? And for me, I believe it must be the maintenance of trust and democracy. And so when I think about it like that, it gives a very clear principle of what those who undertake lobbying activities should be doing. In the same way as the media has a responsibility to talk about all sides of the story, not just one. And when it comes down to it, I think that's the missing piece of this conversation. I mean, um, Deirdre Kent, who's one of our audience, uh, make, makes the point that I, I'm probably overemphasizing business lobbying rather than necessarily what you also described as pro bono lobbying or, mm -hmm. or lobbying for public bodies. Of course, nobody's pro bono because they get sick of his songs from you too. But um, <laughs> with the, uh, t t tell us what the job of a lobbyist actually is. Is it? Is it? Are they the explainer in the white coats standing behind people saying? This is what you need to understand before you act on this on this particular industry or this this charity. I mean, it, it can be a number of things, but one of the simplest way that I describe it is it's just about navigating the vast bureaucracy. And that is one of the things that I do find most concerning is the bureaucracy keeps getting bigger and bigger, which adds more complexity to the people who are trying to navigate it. And arguably, mm -hmm. the public sector is there to serve the public. So therefore, if the public itself does not know how to navigate its democracy, we do have a problem. And I don't want to encourage more uh, complexity in order to create more opportunities for lobbyists. That's actually not what I would like to do. I would just like to make it simpler so that therefore people know that they feel empowered to be able to do it themselves. Uh, but also they know if they needed a trusted ally uh, who has some semblance of standards, they can find one of those lobbyists. Holly, apart from you being, apart from you being a, a saint, it would appear in a in an in an in an industry filled with vipers and um, and snakes and and other other forms of low life. Peter, um, I would say that as the great granddaughter of the first bishop of Aotearoa, New Zealand, oh, I do well, carry carry that title you, very very strongly, close to my heart. You, you, you know about the origin of the word lobbyist? Yes. Yep. From the hotel in Washington, or from Indeed. the from the lobby in London? Oh, the lobby in London. Yeah. Well, there's the, <laughs> so it's either from where the where the where people used to be able to lobby the MPs in London, where and I was a member of the lobby for many years, and. Uh, the general public did not go in there, but it was also um, allegedly from the, from Washington uh, in a particular hotel where somebody described the people walking up and down waiting for the politicians to come in as lobbyists. Mm. Um, can I ask you a, a question, Holly? I mean, someone said to me on this thing about, um, you know, do I think New Zealanders do, do understand lobbying? I'm not actually sure that they they do. This, this idea of... Um, and let, let me ask you a sort of slightly topical question on this because sure. I was going to bore Bernard with this um, after my two-and-a-half-hour trip across <laughs> Auckland in a car today. Um, there's a, a rather ludicrous story going uh, in the Herald at the moment, which is a campaign about the cost of pedestrian crossings. Yes. And one of the things that I was really struck by in this debate, and I see this repeatedly in these kind of weird, that, that actually perfectly practical things become conversations about uh, wokeness and various other things and why why we're all anti-car. But <laughs> if you're building raised pedestrian crossings and uh, uh, TCMs, traffic calming measures everywhere, presumably that's part of a policy that can be explained rather than that you're just doing it to piss away a whole bunch of money to, Ho to Phil from Hogan. Well, one would hope, right? But that's the genesis of many of these things, whether mm. or not they are grounded in anything with principle or somebody has decided because they've woken, woken up on the wrong side of the bed that they're just going to have a go at something for whatever reason. And this is where it comes down to figuring out, especially as a lobbyist, that's your duty to be able to figure out if you can tell a coherent story. And if you can't, then I would suggest that you're probably chasing the wrong thing. Holly, it is wonderful to have you on. You can come on. You can come on again, particularly if you fix up your camera. Oh, <laughs> oh mind you, you probably like to work in the shadows, don't you? No, that's that's that's. Okay, Bernard knows me well enough to know that that's definitely not true. Was the film What We Do in the Shadows, or was it Thank You for Smoking? No, 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 no. 
<laughs> no, no, we would so love to have you on again, Holly. Uh, and um, I'm particularly uh, loving the the shtick you're able to give back to Peter as well. So that's. <laughs> well, did you hear that he did say, can I ask you a question? I was going to say no. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, you guys. See you, See you. See you. Bye-bye. And it's uh, a real pleasure, too, to welcome Nick Goodall back into the Hoon. Nick, it's it's been a busy old week in the world of real estate, mortgages, interest rates, and the other things that um, you and I are both obsessed with, and uh, uh, sadly or happily, the rest of the country is mostly obsessed with as well. Uh, Nick, uh, the Reserve Bank came out with its consultation document and proposals for the long-awaited and pretty important debt-to-income multiple controls, and uh, they had an interesting twist on this, uh, a sort of uh, take with one hand, give away with the other, a spoonful of sugar to make the medicine go down. What did you think of the proposals from the Reserve Bank on Tuesday? Yeah, kia ora Bernard, Peter. Yeah, thanks very much for having me first up. And yeah, look, I think actually, you know, it wasn't too much of a surprise. I think, you know, when they first announced debt-to-income restrictions were on the cards, like were on the table, um, we did wonder about whether there was a chance of the loosening of the loan-to-value ratio restrictions, simply because of the way the Reserve Bank have talked about this. They've talked about one being there to protect the borrower, one being there to protect the bank. And so they've basically said, reinforced that this week and said, if we bring in these DTI controls, then we can loosen the LVRs because the protection will be in the system on both sides. So not too much of a surprise from the broader perspective of having the LVRs loosened at the same time. The numbers that they set them at with six times DTI for owner-occupiers and seven for investors was a little bit of a surprise. And we were expecting almost for just simplicity that it would be all the same thing, maybe at seven. So this tighter, slightly tighter control for owner-occupiers just to protect them for the next cycle when, when values do start to increase to restrict how much debt they can really get um, compared to their income. So yeah, a little bit of a mixed bag, I'd say maybe from the and from expectations perspective anyway. LVRs come in, the loan-to-value ratios in 2013, uh, this had quite an impact on the market. It really slowed things down. Uh, can you give us a sense of, of how you think this time around, the introduction of DTIs, probably in the second half of this year, might affect the market? Because, you know, if, if they'd brought in a, a DTI limit of uh, seven times income, uh, a couple of years ago, um, all hell would have broken loose. But uh, what do you reckon this time around? Yeah, that's right. I think the the lucky thing, or the maybe it's planned from the Reserve Bank's perspective, is that right now the high and higher interest rates, particularly compared to a year or two ago, are really doing the job at slowing how much debt people can take on anyway. If you're being tested at 9% interest rate, it really restricts how much you can borrow compared to your income. So right now, about 10% of lending to investors and 10% of lending to owner-occupiers is outside the six or seven times income limit. So at 20% speed limit, which is where they've set their proposal, which is open for consultation, of course, let's remember, so with some feedback on this, um, at that level, then the banks really aren't, it's not going to affect them at all from the DTI control perspective. But of course, with the LVRs loosening, we actually think this will be a net positive for demand. And actually, once this comes in and we see DTI controls come mm -hmm. in, LVRs loosened, we may actually see a net positive effect to demand from both investors and first home buyers because there will be slightly more of them able to get a mortgage with less of a deposit. So for owner-occupiers, less than 20% deposit. And for investors, that deposit requirement dropping from 35% down to 30%. So yeah, we think net positive from about the middle of the year, if and when these come in, if they do come in as the Reserve Bank has prescribed them so far. Nick, I'm going to step into Bernard's area for a minute, partly because Anasal Bernard may fall off his chair. I went last night to a um, investment seminar by one of the leading New Zealand real estate mavens who predicts a 6% increase in house prices this year and 17% next, and basically said, we're at the bottom of the market now, fill your boots. So I wrote her several checks for um, uh, off-the-plan pl off uh, apartments some of which I may never see, which I hope do better than the ones I have in England, which are dreadful. But there sounds like there's a, some tremendous, I mean, this person was raving about the National Party coming in and sort of uh, making it a, a devil's playground for investors. It sounds, it sounds to me as though there is about to be a boom 
in property prices and that we do we should fill our boots that we should all be buying off plan right now not to give anybody investment advice because if you followed mine you'd be poor as church mice indeed indeed and and yeah, it's worthwhile acknowledging the fact that they've got a bit of a stake in the game of course many of those investment advisors um, and no. also for new builds so off the plan um, property builds they're actually all exempt from DTIs and LVRs anyway so actually these changes shouldn't really affect your behavior if that's what you're looking to do from an existing property perspective yeah look this I think this no doubt makes the market look better than it otherwise would have been and then when you combine yes the new government reinstatement of interest deductibility, um, the shortening of the bright line test. Look, it does create a better market for investors than would have otherwise been the case. I think the one thing that can be lost amid all of this, and there's no doubt the vibe has improved and, and things are better than otherwise, is that we really do have a very stretched market from an affordability perspective. And when you look at the proportion of income required to service the average mortgage today, it sits at 50% nationwide. And so it's still a significant proportion of your income required to get a to get a to go and buy a property. And that's going to be the one big constraint, I think, for this year and for next until interest rates fall. And then of course the main point with these DTIs is even when interest rates fall, people will only be able to borrow a certain amount of money compared to their income because the DTI controls will kick in. So it does feel like it's getting more towards a market that should follow along with income growth more tightly than what we've seen in the past. And that's mm-hmm. the idea from the Reserve Bank here is to reduce the chances of this boom-bust cycle because you cannot borrow 10, 12 times your income, or some people can, but not everyone will be able to just completely fill their boots like we all did when the LVR restrictions weren't there and and COVID hit and we could get as much debt as we wanted at very low interest rates. So, yeah, the idea is to protect against that happening in the future, which should restrict the growth in property prices as well. Because the, the, the real story here, I think, is that the Reserve Bank knows uh, that at some point it's going to have to cut interest rates. Its current forecast is that it won't do it until next year. But the market is now saying it's more likely to be May, June, July, August, let's say. And there's going to be rate cuts later this year. I get a sense the Reserve Bank is, is in a way a bit like one of those motorway builders at the moment. They're putting in some guardrails, some armco. They know things are going to speed up a bit, but they just want to make sure that the cars don't go careering off or off down the gully um, and create a mess. Bernard, the cars go so slowly on the Auckland motorway that I took it today <laughs> at three o'clock that there's no chance of them careering into anything. Uh, well, maybe when it you is, cut interest rates, they'll move a bit quicker. I, I, but, think, um, we need a, I think we need another two lanes on, the, on Highway one another another lane on on highway 20 and possibly no i was thinking we need to go back to stacking them up like the like the high line uh, in the no. us no no the key thing when you have some spare money peter is not to invest it in public infrastructure is to invest it in residential land exactly exactly <laughs> jesus christ i've just been to a, a place called flatbush and i can tell you there's this you know there, there's an old muldoon thing about um don't worry about coming to Auckland. Auckland is coming to you. Yes, there's, there's an element of that. Um, uh, so, Nick, um, what did you reckon of this week's inflation figures and what that means for um, interest rates? Because that's the other part of the story is, yes, guardrails in place, but um, how soon before the traffic speeds up? Yeah, it's a good point. And, I mean, I think we need to understand that, you know, the Reserve Bank's been looking at some other type of control for a long period now. They consulted on whether DTIs would be, whether it would be a minimum serviceability rate, all these things. It would have been a couple of years ago now. So they have been looking to do something like this anyway. But I think you're right in terms of, you know, the importance of it now as we approach a period at some stage, probably this year, that interest rates fall, that this is going to provide that protection against that. And you're right, the CPI data this week certainly showed that inflation is coming down at a faster rate than Reserve Bank expected, but it is still relatively high. So I think we've got to be careful to jumping the gun here. And the key point I think that's being mostly made has been the difference between this, you know, imported or domestic inflation. Mm. And we have seen that slowdown in um, the imported inflation, so the stuff from overseas, as opposed to the domestic inflation, which is really where the Reserve Bank has the control with interest rates. And that 1.1% growth in the fourth quarter for domestic inflation is still quite quite high. Annualised that mm. still at 4.4%. So I think they'll still err on the side of caution here. When we hear from them at the end of next month, I believe it is, I think they'll still talk the tough game. But there's no doubt that forecast of theirs for the OCR is going to start drifting slower as we move throughout the first half of the, this year, let's say. Let's say. 
Well, it will be interesting to see next uh, Tuesday, I understand, Paul Conway, the chief economist, will be giving a speech. And there'll be an awful lot of uh, close reading of that speech because it's the first time the Reserve Bank has spoken about the economy since November the 28th. And they're not due to come out again until February the 29th from from memory, an enormous gap uh, when stuff has happened. So, yeah, on Tuesday we might get more of an indication from the Reserve Bank of what's happening. Nick, thank you so much for coming on. Lovely to, to see you. And... Um, uh, fill, your I, boots, I, fill your boots, I think, is my advice. And, yeah. and then use the boot to push down on the accelerator? Is this what you do? <laughs> I'm removing myself from that comment. Be greedy. Greed is good, apparently. Greed is good. Uh, so, so, Peter, speaking of greed and maybe appetites for food, you have a, a great story for us. Well, we have about a, sort of, a sort of an economic skateboarding dog. So, the best kind. The reason I like this, because I think, what, what did we do last week? We did statistics with the guy who had the fold-out uh, note where he was putting a pin through it to work out who was a, a pretty yes. woman or not, and he was uh, described by The Economist as being a bit of a prick. Um, yes. This is about VAT, value-added tax, and uh, what it made me think of is the times when I was reporting on Roger Douglas coming in and launching GST, mm. and it's the reason that he launched it on everything. And I remember Rob Campbell who was then the chief economist, I think, for the Federation of Labor, when probably Tom Skinner, I think, I, mean, I have been around since the 1880s. But anyway, it's a UK VAT judgment, which shows you the folly of all of these attempts and what we, we would have been going through this had Labor removed, had mm. been, been, been in power to remove GST. And it's a story about Walker's poppadoms. And that Walkers is a gigantic crisp company. Um, chips, uh, chips, we call them chips. chips. Crisps, crisps, chips, not, not, not bloody fish and chips, but crisps, yes, chips, which Gary Lineker is the famous spokesman for. And they have created a thing called the Walkers Poppadom, which is a multi-flavoured little disc about the size of a 50 cent piece or possibly a 50p coin, actually. And they were arguing that it should be exempt from VAT. Chips, crisps in England are not exempt from VAT because they're a snack. Corn chips, because they have avocado on them if you if you use a guacamole dip, are food. And in this case, Walker's was arguing that the poppadom, because it was a poppadom, was therefore food and not eligible for VAT. And they lost the case. They lost the case. And but the, the line from the judges showed that they had a tremendous sense of humor, I thought, because essentially they decided that it was a snack and that the Walker's argument that you would have dipped the poppadom in something else and eaten it, or that it was like a poppadom in an Indian restaurant, was unsustainable. And they said, nominative determinism is not a characteristic of snack foods. Calling a snack food hula hoops does not mean that one could twirl that product around one's midriff, nor is monster munch generally reserved as a food for monsters. <laughs> Oh, you got to love the British legal system yeah, sometimes. Exactly. And we would be having this kind of case and we would be discussing it in an incredibly humorless way about the difference between, you know, one aisle and another in Freeman's Bay, New World. Yes. Now, that's a great, one of the great all-time skateboarding dog stories, Peter, as much because you introduced it by talking about a guy called Gary Lineker. Oh, yeah. Gary Lineker, uh, for those who follow sport, is obviously a uh, one of the best and most famous uh, English strikers and captains of recent years. Um, but a lot of people don't know that he now is a podcasting media Supremo. mogul yep. in the United Kingdom. And his, and his company is called Goldhanger Media. Yes, and is responsible for... Generally, not only the best, uh, mostly the best and the most popular podcasts in the country, including This Is Politics, uh, This Is History, and Empire, and I, I which I recommend all of them. And one of the great stories that a footballer who promotes crisps or chips has turned into the, the most influential, if not one of the most influential mm. media titans of the modern age. Well, uh, actually, what I'm thinking of, Werner, is we could have this as the rest is caca, you know, oh. as in the French meaning of the word caca. <laughs> oh, it's good. Yeah, I but like we it. should definitely, uh, I think, I think you know, we, we don't want to be promoting other people's bloody uh, podcasting Podcast. things. But can oh, I just also generous. point out on the VAT thing, I'd forgotten this, 
McVitie's Jaffa Cakes. Oh, yeah. Uh, the tax authorities had sought to make them taxable, but they were defined was a cake. So it wasn't taxable for VAT, but Pringles was found to be a crisp, despite being, as you know, you know, reconstituted hideous toenails or whatever it's made from, and flapjacks, which were found to be too chewy to be th- to be a cake and therefore subject to VAT. So you know, let's 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 be grateful that Labour didn't get re-elected, so that we we don't have to be uh, dealing with that. Yes. I'm kidding. Great fun. Great fun with tax policy and humour. A- absolute Tax policy and humour. Very few people can put that together as you and I can. This is what the beauty of podcasts. Peter Bale, a co-host of The Kaka. I'm Bernard Hickey, a co-host for uh, uh, The Kaka. The and this, is, this has been The Rest is Kaka. The Rest is Kaka. Kakite ono, everyone. Oh, Have a wonderful uh, weekend. And uh, we'll see you all next Thursday at 5 p.m. Not if we see you first. See you, Bernard. Not if we see you. Catch you later. Bye-bye.